Thank you, Dave. Good morning. Good to see you. Uh, welcome to the Parkway Church. My name is Jeff, one of the pastors here. Glad that you are, uh, are with us uh, this morning as we will be looking at Romans 12, 3 through 8. And so if this is your first time with us, we just walk through Scripture. And uh, so last week we were in Romans 12, 1 through 2. This week we're in 3 through 8. Next week we'll pick it up in, uh, in verse 9. And that's how we do things. And as you make your way there in the Bible, it's very important that you uh, have a Bible uh, with you. And so we encourage you to bring one, uh, preferably a hardbound one. But if you want to use your phone or something like that, as long as you're not distracted by email or Facebook or whatever it might be, then feel free to look at that and, uh, and follow along with us. But as you make your way there, I want to tell you a story. I've told the story before of when I was about 10 years old or so, and uh, my entire family on my mom's side went uh, skiing. We went to Lake Tahoe. And uh, so some of you might remember the story uh, from a couple of years ago. And so on this trip, that was when we became arch enemies of uh, Don Knotts. And uh, so some of you know who Don Knotts is. If you're a kid and you don't know who Don Knotts is, ask your parents or maybe even your grandparents or Mr. Carl. He's kind of old. And, uh, and so uh, ask anybody. Uh, Don Knotts was this famous actor and, uh, and he uh, on this ski trip in the airport, he stole the cart from my great-grandmother. We had ordered a cart to be there and so that uh, it could kind of uh, move her around the airport because she didn't uh, walk all that well. And for whatever reason, he thought, I'm a celebrity. I'm just going to take this. And, uh, and so he did. Uh, I think Andy Griffith would be very disappointed in him. But that is the story of how we uh, got to be kind of arch enemies of him. And to this day, some of my family members do not like uh, Don Knotts. And uh, so... That is not the story that I'm going to tell today. That's just to set you up. That was my first time to ever go skiing. Fast forward a couple of years, uh, about four years, and I went on a youth ski trip to, to New Mexico. And, uh, and so we drive out there in the van. We get there. Uh, we spend the night, and then we wake up the next morning, and we're going to go skiing. And so we go. We get all of the equipment. We get the uh, boots. We get the uh, skis. We get the poles. Nobody wore helmets back then. Apparently, people just thought it was safe to just unleash kids on a mountain without a helmet. Uh, but that was 20 years ago. People didn't think about things like they do today. And, uh, and so they just kind of unleash us. And most of my friends head off to ski school. A lot of them had never been skiing before. But I have been skiing before uh, four years ago. I went uh, like two days. And so I kind of thought of myself as kind of the what Michael Phelps is to swimming, what Steph Curry is to basketball what uh, Steve Williams is to dentistry. That's how I thought of myself. And, uh, and so I thought, I don't need ski school. I'm going to just go and ski. Why do I want to waste an entire half a day going to this ski school? And so I went, I got on a lift, I got off the lift, and, uh, and I started down uh, the mountain. And about halfway down the mountain, I am uh, increasing in speed, as you tend to do, and realize I don't remember how to decrease speed. And I also don't remember how to stop. And, uh, and so uh, this collides in my mind, and I think, oh, no, this is not going to go well for me. Whatever that uh, sort of pie thing you do is where you put your skis like this, that's not working for me. Uh, to try to do kind of a serpentine motion and slow down, that's not working for me. Nothing is working for me. All I'm doing is basically just going straight down. At least I had the presence of mind to know I probably shouldn't tuck. So I was like this to try to get, like, wind resistance. Uh, but that's not a good strategy for, uh, for stopping yourself. And, uh, and so uh, as I'm almost down to the very bottom, I see there is directly in front of me, there is the ski school. 
And there are just a collection of kids, a, I don't know what they're called, a flock or a gaggle or a herd of kids or something like that. And I am racing right for them. And so I realized in that moment, I have two options. The first option is I can just run into this group of kids. The second option is I can just face plant. I can just fall down. I knew I could somehow figure out how to do that. And so those are my two options. I can either run into this group and probably impale and kill some kids, or I can completely humiliate myself. So I take a deep breath and I aim for the biggest kid I can find. No, I didn't do that. I didn't do that. Uh, I just face planted. I just completely bowed out. And it wasn't graceful looking. Like it wasn't, no one was looking at that and thinking, oh, that was a very, very gentle fall. It was violent. It was humiliating because a lot of people in that ski school were my friends. And, uh, and so that is uh, the story that I want to open with because I think it's an illustration of one of the concerns that's in our passage this morning. The same way that my pride, my presumption, my preferences nearly endangered this group of people. That's what Paul is going to say uh, is going to happen within the context of a local church, that an individual member's pride and presumption and preferences and these kinds of things endanger not just himself, not just that individual member, but the entire whole, the entire body. You see, the problem in my skiing example wasn't my skis. They were perfectly good skis. The problem wasn't the slope. It wasn't even like a double diamond or anything like that. It was probably like a bunny slope. No, the problem was entirely myself. The problem was I had no ski talent. I had no ski gifting. I was not the Michael Phelps of swimming. I was the Michael Phelps of skiing. I had no skill whatsoever, and yet in my pride, I thought I was better than I actually was. And that's the concern of this passage this morning, that the church body cannot properly function when members of that body refuse to lay down their rights their privileges, their preferences for the sake of that body. But he's going to contrast that in a healthy spiritual body, all of the various members are loving each other and serving each other in humble dependence on grace that has been given to each of them for the common good of that body. So let's pray, and then we'll dive into Romans 12, 3 through 8 together. I want to begin by just asking you to pray for yourself. You come in with uh, particular uh, anxieties or stresses or strains, or maybe you're apathetic this morning, you're distracted, whatever it might be, would you ask the Lord to open your eyes that you might behold wonderful things in His Word? And then would you pray that this morning for those around you in the theme of this passage that we're not just these disconnected, just disjointed members, that we are one body, that we are members one of each other. Would you pray that collectively for us, for Parkway? And then would you pray for me, that whatever gifting the Lord has given me, whether it's teaching or preaching or knowledge or wisdom or exhortation or whatever it might be, that that might be submitted to the authority of God's Scripture for the good of uh, this particular uh, people. So, Father, we do ask that you would incline our hearts to your testimonies, that you would open our eyes, uh, that we might behold beautiful things in your Word, that you would Unite our hearts to fear your name, and you would satisfy us this morning with your steadfast love. We ask these things because you're a good father and you give good gifts, so we pray it all in Christ's name. Amen. We'll begin in verse 3. Again, Romans 12, verse 3, where Paul writes, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith 
that God has assigned. Last week, if you were here, you know that we considered the importance of the mind in the life of a Christian. That transformation is going to begin with the mind, and then it's going to affect the heart, which is then going to affect the hands, which is then going to transform the habitat uh, around you. So it's head, heart, hands, habitat. And we talked about how what we want to do is we want to short-circuit that process. We want to, uh, all of us naturally want to skip over the head and go straight to the heart or skip over the head and the heart and go straight to the hands or go straight to the habitat. But we talked about how that is similar to trying to, to, to light a fire but having no fuel that will actually burn deeply. That's what theology does. Theology is the fuel for our doxology. That is our worship. It's the fuel for mission. It's the fuel for discipleship and all of those sorts of things. And as we'll see, even in this passage, the passage this morning, uh, this text, that there is a bad way to think and there is a good way to think. But Paul says, you have to think. Now, that doesn't mean that everyone needs to understand Greek or Hebrew. That doesn't mean that all of us need to be able to read Martin Luther in Greek or read John Calvin in French. It doesn't mean that you need a PhD in New Testament. It doesn't mean that you need an IQ of 180 or something like that. But it does mean that every single one of us needs to saturate our lives with Scripture. We need to be thinking deeply about Scripture. It means that every single one of us need to be filling our lives with expository sermons. We need to be listening to people, men who will preach the Word, who will stand up and walk through the Word. It means that we need to do something like uh, biblical doctrine classes. Maybe even find a church that has something that maybe hypothetically is called a theological equipping class, where you're able to walk through some of the doctrines that the church has always held, that our habitats are transformed by our hands in our hearts, but ultimately it begins with a transformation of the head. So we have to start there. That's what we talked about last week. And our passage today, it's interesting because Paul is going to draw us back to the life of the mind. And he says that we are not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think, but instead we are to think with sober judgment. Now, if you were here for chapter 11, you'll notice that in chapter 11, Paul addressed the subject of pride multiple times. I think it's three different times he will kind of uh, talk about pride, in particular through the lens of Jew-Gentile relationships. That's the context, uh, in particular, of Romans 9 through 11, Jew-Gentile relationships within the context of uh, of the church. So he addresses pride from that particular standpoint, but now what he's going to do, starting in chapter 12, is going to address pride more universally. You see, pride is not merely this issue that that exists for this church in Rome between Jews and Gentiles. Pride is this universal condition. Regardless of your age, regardless of your gender, regardless of your race, regardless of your ethnicity, regardless of your socioeconomic status, regardless of your level of education, and on and on we could go, pride is this universal condition. In fact, according to Romans 1, pride is at the root, it's the fundamental sin uh, that is related to all other sins. If you dig up any sin in your life, whatever that sin is, whether that sin is uh, greed, whether that sin is pornography or some other sort of sexual morality, Whatever your sin is, murder, uh, adultery, stealing, whatever that is, if you dig down deep, you will find at the root of it is pride, which is why the Bible is saturated, it's permeated with these warnings against pride. 
For example, Proverbs 16, 18, we often quote that, misquote it, by the way, as pride comes before the fall. It actually says pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a, a fall. That reminds me of my illustration from earlier. James 4, 6 through 10, it says, but God gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. In verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Philippians 2, 3 through 4, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And we could go on and on. In fact, I had about seven other passages uh, in my notes, and then for the sake of time, I realized I needed to, uh, to cut them out. But we could go on and on because this uh, subject, this theme is going to permeate Scripture. So why is it? that God hates pride? Why does God so hate pride? Why is this all over uh, in, uh, in the Bible? Because it boasts in what it's not, in what is not its own. It distorts the glory of God by thinking and acting as if you and I have earned something that we haven't earned, or if we've deserved something that we haven't actually deserved. Instead, it's been freely given by God. And so he commands us not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought. There's two different ways that you could misapply this. There's two different ways that you could not actually apply this uh, correctly. The first one is the most obvious. That is, maybe for some of us, we think that we are great. In the context, maybe you think that you are God's gift to the church. Not that you have gifts that are given by God to benefit the church, but you think that you yourself are God's gift to the church. That's the first way, that you think too highly of yourself. You think you have all the gifts that you need, and therefore the church becomes peripheral. The church becomes inconsequential. The church becomes irrelevant to you. The second way that you might think of yourself too highly is much more subtle, and that's to swing the pendulum all the way to the other way. It's to have this sort of woe is me self-pity that I don't have any gifts or the gifts that I have are not as good as these other gifts that this other guy has. So the church doesn't need me. Again, the second way is subtle, but it's just as vain. It's just as proud because instead of being focused on others and being focused on the common good and being focused on the glory of God, it's still focused on self. It's still narcissistic. And so Paul is going to contrast this proud thinking, this thinking too highly of ourselves with what he calls sober judgment according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. And that means a couple of things. First, it means that we are to see ourselves correctly in relation to God. We've mentioned this before. We'll continue to mention it as long as we do ministry here at Parkway, that everything that you have is grace. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, every part of your life is grace. All things work together for good. Every good and perfect gift flows from the Father of lights. Every good gift is by grace. Every talent that you have, every treasure that you have, every gifting that you have, every ability that you have, every strength that you have, all of it is a result of God's unmerited favor. You have not merited it. You have not deserved it. You have not earned it. You have earned, you have merited, you have discerned wrath and condemnation. That's it. Anything you have that's not wrath 
and judgment and condemnation is a gift of God's free grace. Even faith itself, we've talked about before, is grace. Even the ability for you to see and perceive grace in your life is grace. Even faith itself, that should be humbling. 1 Corinthians 4, 7 says, what do you have that you did not receive? That's a rhetorical question. The answer is nothing. If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? So that's the first way to think with sober judgment, to see yourself correctly in relation to the triune God and His grace and the gospel. The second way that we are to think of ourselves with sober judgment in the context of Romans 12, 3 through 8, is to see ourselves correctly in relation to others. In the context, the, the, uh, the theme is that you're a member of a body that uh, you have been given certain gifts. And those gifts are for the edification and encouragement of those bodies. Not so that you might boast yourself. No, that so that it, not so that you might be exalted, but so that others might be edified and so that others might be encouraged. You were given certain gifts so that you might edify and encourage the body. And... According to this passage, there were other gifts that you were not given so that you might be dependent upon the body, that no one is self-contained. There are no one-man or one-woman churches. So that's the second way that you are to see yourself correctly in relation to others, to believe that every gift that you've been given has been given for the edification and encouragement of the body, and that certain gifts you haven't been given so that you might lean in and be dependent upon the body. Let's see how Paul is going to develop this in verses 4 through 5. He writes, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. This spring in theological equipping, we'll be studying what's called ecclesiology. That's the fancy theological term for the doctrine of the church. This is really fitting that we happen to be talking about this this morning. There are various metaphors, there's various images that Paul in particular is going to use throughout Scripture uh, to describe the church. You're familiar with a number of them, that is the bride of Christ, the family of God, the house of God. By the way, Scripture never uses the the phrase house of God to refer to a building, Uh, so that's why we don't talk about this is the house of God. No, we are the house of God. The house of God is not a building, it's people. Likewise, with the temple of God, that's another metaphor that the Scripture would use. Again, the temple not being a building, but we are the dwelling place for God's Spirit as, uh, as people. The pillar and buttress of truth, which is just fun to say, and, uh, and on and on we could go. But the most common metaphor by far, and by far the one that Paul most develops, is going to be this metaphor, this image that we are a body that's composed of various members. By the way, that's where the idea of membership comes from. If you want to know why we do membership, why we call it a member meeting or a membership class, it's just taking directly from Scripture and from this image. The biblical expectation isn't just that Christians attend church, although that is an expectation. It's that Christians be con- uh, connected, that they participate in a particular church with a particular people uh, and particular elders and so forth. I think a lot of people, especially people who grew up in, uh, in kind of a Western American context with its sort of focus on isolationism and individualism and uh, you pull yourself up by the bootstraps and all of these sorts of uh, uh, cultural motifs, I, I think a lot of us kind of think of the church a bit like a Mr. Potato Head. Anyone ever have a Mr. Potato Head growing up? 
No one raised their hand, but I'm, some of you nodded, so I assume that you did. Just a bunch of disconnected, disjointed parts, right? You could have multiple uh, Mr. Potato Heads or Mrs. Potato Heads or whatever uh, other things, Fireman Potato Heads, whatever they had. And you could just take like uh, lips off of one and you could take a nose off of another and you could just kind of compose them however you want. I think that's how a lot of people think of the church. We're these disjointed members. I don't actually belong to a body. I don't actually participate in a body. I don't actually, I'm not actually connected. I'm not actually associated. You can take me off of this uh, potato and plug me onto this other potato and I will thrive and I will flourish just as well. And that's how a lot of churches think of their members, by the way, that you can just simply remove. And so if you remove yourself and you're the eyes, what do I care? I'll just go and get another pair of eyes. That's how a lot of people think of the church. That's how a lot of churches think of uh, their members. But imagine trying to do that with your own body. Imagine trying to cut off your hand and seeing how well your hand is going to flourish apart from your body. Imagine how well your body is going to flourish apart from your hand without medical care or whatever it might be. I read a uh, really tragic story this past week about a teenager in China uh, who donated a kidney on the black market. The reason that he did it, maybe some of you read this on the BBC or something like that. The reason that he did it is because someone offered him, on the black market, they offered him the finances to be able to buy an iPhone. And so he sold a kidney. And he said at the time, I have two kidneys. Why do I need this other one? Fast forward seven years. He's now in his early 20s. He has renal failure in his other kidney, and he's bedridden for the rest of his life. That's the image that the Bible is going to hold of our connected. Uh, connectivity in our interdependence upon the church, that we can't simply just pick and choose and be disconnected and disjointed or whatever uh, it might be, that the church is not peripheral or inconsequential or irrelevant. And yet for some of us, we think, you know what, I will attend when I want. I'll attend where I want. I'll serve if and when I want. I'll give if and, and when I want. We're willing to trade relationship and community and discipleship and sanctification, which all happen in the church, for a bit of work or vacation or kids' activities or whatever it might be. There's no real sense of belonging. There's no real sense of, uh, of interdependence, just this unswerving commitment to self and convenience. Last week, we saw, Zach walked us through this, we saw that you don't belong to yourself. That's what culture tells you. Culture tells you it's all about your life, your body, your choices, your freedom. You, 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 you. That's pagan. That's unchristian. That's unbiblical. That is untrue. We talked last week about how the, uh, you don't belong to yourself. That there are all of these different levels before you even get to yourself. Imagine, if you will, there's this line, and you are at the back of the line. First in line is God. God owns you. You belong to God first and foremost. By virtue of creation, the fact that He is the creator of you means He has absolute rights over you. If you are a Christian, you, He has double rights over you because He's also redeemed you. And then if you're married, you also have your spouse, that the husband's uh, body does not belong to himself, the wife's body does not belong to herself, it belongs to another, so you also have your spouse who's in front of you in line. Zach talked about also the fact that the government uh, has a sense in which they have ownership over you to a limited degree, so you're behind them as well. So Zach said you're about fourth in line, but actually today we find you've got to move 
back even a little bit further because the Bible says that we're members one of another, that there's a sense in which the church has ownership over you, that you belong to the church, not to me as an elder, not to Zach as an elder, but to each other, that the people that are sitting around you, you belong to them. You are members one of another according uh, to this passage, that you belong to the church the body of Christ, we're members one of another, as Paul is going to write here. In other words, there's this beautiful mosaic that Paul is going to paint for us of unity and diversity within the church. There's this unity in the sense that we are one body. There is only one body. We're not autonomous. We're interconnected. We're dependent on each other. So that's unity, but there's also diversity that exists within the body. And now when I say diversity... People tend to think of it uh, through the lens of things like race or ethnicity or gender or age. That's not the type of diversity that Paul is concerned about here. He's talking about a diversity of gifts, a diversity of functions, that we've been given different functions, that we've been different, given different gifts and skills and talents and uh, roles within the church. We're not monolithic. Imagine, if you will, the, a monstrous person that for, for whatever reason just has no eyes, they have no eyes, they have no uh, nose, they have no hands, they have no feet. Instead, they just have ears all over the place. Not big ears like I have, but just ears all over the place. Where their eyes were, instead they have ears. Where their nose was, instead they have ears. They can hear you whispering a mile away, but they're going to have really trouble doing anything else, right? That's the image that, the, that Paul is giving us here, that God has composed the body with various members, with various functions for the overall flourishing of that body so that we would not be some sort of monstrosity that everyone can see but no one can hear, that everyone can hear but no one can see, or whatever it might be, that God has given us different gifts so that we might all flourish individually and corporately, and we're commanded to carry out our individual functions for the sake of the corporate good. So let's look at verses 6 through 8 and see how this plays out. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So again, the members of the body have diverse functions and Paul is going to describe those functions as being met by diverse gifts, diverse gifts exercised for the good of the body. So as we begin to talk about gifts, I want to give a few opening clarifications, a few opening thoughts. First, biblically, we know, even from this passage, that every believer has been given gifts. Every single one of us. If you've received grace to trust Christ, then you have also received grace to serve His body that none are left out, none are passed over, no matter your age, your gender, your socioeconomic status, your education, whatever it might be, you have gifts to serve the church. That's the first thing. Every single believer, if you love and trust Jesus, you have been given gifts to serve others who love and trust Jesus within the context of the local church. Second, that gifts are by grace and that they are apportioned according to God's sovereign will, which means that no one gets to boast in their particular gifts. Maybe your particular gift is that you are uh, a great teacher. Maybe your particular gift is that you are uh, just really gifted in being able to pray. Whatever that is, you don't get to boast in that. That is 100% by God's grace. 
On the other hand, you don't get to wallow in self-pity if you don't have other gifts that you might want. You don't get to look at Zach and his gift for teaching. You don't get to look at Steve and his gift for exhortation. You don't get to look at Tim and his gift for, uh, for leading worship. You don't get to look at some of our deacons and their gifts for administration or serving. You don't get to look at them and say, oh, woe is me, and to be filled with self-pity and to wallow in that. You've been given the gifts that you've been given for God's glory and for the good of the body, and you've not been given other gifts so that you might press in and be dependent and rely upon the body. Third thing to know about gifts is that those gifts are to be stewarded for the good of others. This is, I think, oftentimes something that we can miss in the American church. Why is it that you love theology? Why is it that you just have a mind that just grasps deep biblical truth? It's not so that you can sit around all day and just read and get puffed up with arrogance. It's so that you can read and study, yes, but then so that you can go out And you can teach others. You can disciple others. You can grab coffee with one or two others and discuss the Bible and read books together and talk about it and those kinds of things. Why is it that you have extra finances? Biblically, the answer is not so that you can just buy a boat or so that you can go and you can just buy a bigger house and then whenever you get another raise, you buy a bigger house and then you buy a bigger house. The reason that you've been given extra finances is so that you might love and serve the church. You might be generous, that you might contribute with generosity uh, to others. Why do you love to pray? Why do you love to share the gospel? Why do you love to host people in your house? All of these things uh, have the same answer. The reason that you've been given these gifts is to build up, to love, to serve, to encourage the body of Christ. The gifts that you've been given have been given to you for that reason, not for your glory but for the edification and encouragement of others. Fourth, we see biblically we don't have the same gifts. We have gifts that differ, according to the language here, gifts that differ according to differing grace. Again, which means that we're interdependent. I was once listening to a sermon uh, by a pastor that I actually uh, really enjoyed, uh, but for this particular sermon, I didn't think it was great. And, uh, And he was talking about spiritual gifts And after every single one, he found like every single gift that's listed out in Scripture. And after every single one, he said, I have this gift. And then he went on and talked about how he used it. And by the end of the sermon, I thought, man, you are a self-contained church. You are a one-man church. You don't need anybody else. You are a head and eyes and feet and a spleen and all kinds of things. That is biblically absurd. We don't have the same gifts. And the reason we don't have the same gifts is so that we might see that we need each other. Fifth... This is not an exhaustive list. We're going to see other gifts when we get to 1 Corinthians. We'll see other gifts in 1 Peter. We'll see other gifts in Ephesians, for example. This is just a representative sampling of some of the gifts that God gives His people. Now, I'm not going to get into each and every, uh, every one of these gifts. That's not really Paul's point. His point is simply to say whatever gift you have, no matter what, whatever gift you have, use it for the glory of God and the good of others and for the building up and the encouragement and edification of the church. That's the point here. Uh, the point is not to just sim- simply single out any of these individual gifts. But that said, the first gift that he mentions is, is uh, somewhat controversial, and so I did want to spend a couple of minutes uh, talking about that um, and, uh, and at least sort of build some biblical uh, borders, if you will. We don't have time to kind of exhaust the subject of prophecy 
At some point, we will uh, hopefully get a chance to preach through 1 Corinthians, and we'll certainly uh, be comprehensive there because uh, it's dealt with at length there. Uh, but for today, I just want to give a brief overview of why the subject is, uh, of prophecy is difficult. The reason that it's so difficult is because throughout history, you have pastors and theologians, even Christ-exalting, Bible-saturated, theologically robust pastors and theologians who disagree on a couple of things. They disagree on what prophecy is and whether it even exists in the church today. And so you can see we, this is a really controversial uh, sort of, uh, of subject. And uh, so that's the bad news. The bad news is this is really controversial, and a lot of people uh, are going to come down in different places on it. Now, here's the good news. You don't really need to answer that question in order to understand what's happening in Romans 12 verses 3 through 8, because again, that is not the point. But I do want to give uh, a couple of uh, kind of borders for us to recognize some inherent dangers to how some people might treat this subject. So I want you to imagine, if you will, imagine that you're driving on a road, and this road is winding, and on every side of the road, on both sides of the road, there are these steep cliffs, all right? And you're driving along this road. Now, uh, if you have ever driven along sort of a windy mountain road or something like that, you know that you're really grateful for those places where they have guardrails. Hopefully, you never have to use the guardrails, right? None of us are just driving along the guardrail, but it makes you feel better knowing that the guardrail is there to prevent you from plummeting down into your death. That's all I'm going to do this morning when it comes to prophecy. I'm not going to define prophecy. I'm not going to uh, kind of uh, show my hand on what I think prophecy is, but I am going to give you a couple of guardrails to protect us from going over, uh, over the cliff. And so uh, that is, I think I said cliff. Cliff is the, uh, the word there. So let me give you two borders, two boundaries that relate to the discussion of prophecy. The first one is that we have to recognize, we have to believe, we have to receive, we have to trust that regardless of what we think about prophecy and whether it exists today, that God can still lead, that God can still direct, that God can still guide His people, that God still does things like miracles. There's a tendency in some that think that the, that particular gift or the sign gifts like tongues and prophecy and miracles and healings, there's a tendency in some who think that, that those gifts ceased with the, the death of the last apostle or the uh, closing of the New Testament canon, there's a tendency in some that think that that gift has ceased uh, to then swing the pendulum over here and, and, and almost make God into some sort of deistic thing. He just kind of wound up the clock, and then he just kind of lets it go. I even heard a professor one time, it was a professor that I actually enjoyed, uh, but he said um, uh, that whenever he's making decisions, he said, I don't even pray. He said, I just read the Bible. And then I'd do something. And I thought, man, I love the fact that you're emphasizing the Bible, but man, I can't go with you. That seems to be a much too mechanistic way of understanding God as if He no longer acts or leads or directs His people. And so that's the first boundary that we need to have. If those of us who are more inclined to think that the gift doesn't exist, we need to recognize God still leads, He still directs, He still prompts, He still influences His people in certain directions. Second guardrail, we need to recognize that any feeling, any sense that you may have of God's leading, of God's prompting, of God's guiding, of God's speaking, whatever it might be, any sense that you have, any feeling that you have, 
those are going to be fallible. Those are fallible, and they must be subjected to the infallible authority of Scripture. There's a tendency in those who think that this gift have continued to kind of exalt this gift, to exalt some sort of sense over Scripture. They exalt their feelings over Scripture. But biblically, any word of the Lord that you think that you may hear or feel or sense, whether in prayer or whatever it might be, any sense that you have is never on the same level as the word of the Lord that we read. In fact, the written word of God is the means by which we assess the validity of anything that we may think that we hear. This is why we talk about when it comes to decision making, there are two things that you need to go to before you go to yourself, before you listen to your own heart, before you listen to your own feelings, before you listen to any sort of internal prompting. You need to go to Scripture, and then you need to consult others who know Scripture to make sure you're not being misled. Making decisions without Scripture and also without community is a bit like driving down that winding road with your eyes closed, with your ears closed, and you're just trying to make your way by smell or by taste or something like that. So if you just stay between those guardrails, I think that will really help you regardless of how you uh, define prophecy. It helps you to avoid a thousand prophetic precipices. But again, the point of this text isn't really to define or describe each individual gift, so I don't want to miss the forest for the trees. What is the point? The point is simply that with whatever gift you have, you should use it to the glory of God and the good of the body, whether that gift is prophecy or service or teaching or exhortation or giving or leading or any other uh, gift that's listed elsewhere. So with that in mind, I want us to get kind of practical, which is an interesting thing. In, in, uh, uh, in chapters uh, 1 through 11, there's not a whole lot of just uh, explicit application in the text. We've talked before about how the Bible is kind of divided into sections that are indicative versus imperative. Indicative just simply states something that exists, and imperative says this is what you were to do with it. In chapters 1 through 11 of the book of Romans, there's not a whole lot of imperatives. There's not a whole lot of commands for you and for me. Chapters 12 through 16 are going to be chock full of commands as we're going to take all of the theology that's been built, the foundation of chapters 1 through 11, and now we begin to move in uh, to that in 12 and beyond. And so I want to get... Uh, practical with uh, some of the things that we need to know about, uh, about gifts, some of the, the implications and the applications of this text. The first one is that every one of us who loves and trusts Jesus should belong to the body of Christ. In particular, I would say you should belong to a local church, a particular body of Christ. The biblical expectation isn't just that you occasionally attend church, my dad's heart occasionally stopped beating when he was about my age, which is why for the past two and a half decades, he's had a pacemaker. That's what it's like for a member of a body to occasionally attend, to occasionally serve, to occasionally be involved or whatever it might be. The biblical expectation isn't just that you are occasionally involved. An occasionally involved member hurts the body and endangers that member. How much more someone who's completely detached or someone who's completely uninvolved from a church. Again, the biblical requirement is that we might belong and contribute through interdependence. So the expectation for you is that you would find a local church. It doesn't have to be Parkway. Find a local church and attach yourself to it 
that you and that church might be mutually encouraged and edified. That's the first thing, that all of us are commanded to belong to a body. Second, that we are to indiv- uh, identify our individual gifts. How do we do that? Let me tell you this. Don't go and take an online gifts assessment. That's about as helpful as taking a quiz to find out which character from Friends is your soulmate or which Disney princess you are. I took that quiz one time. I got a princess I wasn't even familiar was a princess. Those are not helpful, right? Those don't actually edify you and encourage you, right, to know that your uh, soulmate is Ross or Rachel or whatever it might be. Likewise, those online gifts tests aren't actually going to be all that helpful for you. So let me tell you what will be helpful. Just to ask yourself these two questions. One, what am I passionate about? What am I really, really passionate about? What do I love to do? What do I love to think about? What is it that really gets me going? What am I passionate about? And then the second question, which is essential that you ask yourself this follow-up question, that is, what do others tend to be edified and encouraged by? What of my passions do others tend to be edified and encouraged by? So I'd actually ask others that question. Whenever I do this particular thing, do you find it edifying and encouraging? And both of those things are going to be really important. For, uh, for example, I really love to sing, but I'm not that good at singing. I'm one quarter Japanese, but I 100% love karaoke. But that is not a particular gifting that I have, and so I have to let that dream go. It's an area that I'm passionate about, but it's not an area that I'm gifted in. No one is edified. No one is encouraged whenever I sing. And so that's an area that I know I'm not gifted in that particular uh, area. So likewise, some of you might think, you know what? I'm a teacher. I'm a teacher. I've been gifted to teach. But you don't really love theology. You don't really love studying. You don't really love to read. You don't really love these kinds of things. That's a pretty good sign that you're not uh, gifted as a teacher. Or maybe you do love those things. But whenever you teach, other people are like looking at you like you're crazy and they're just super confused. That's another good uh, uh, kind of rationale for thinking, you know what, maybe I don't have this particular gifting. So that's a good start. Uh, just to ask yourself the question, what am I passionate about? And then what do others say that they are edified and encouraged by in me? Don't just ask like your grandmother. She's encouraged by everything. Like my mother-in-law is like that. She's an encourager. That is a gift that she has. But she also will lie to me because she'll tell me that I'm really good at singing. So don't do that. Find people who actually know your faults and failures and will be honest with you. What are you passionate about and what are others edified by? That's the second thing. Identify your individual gifts. Third, Identify the body's needs. This is an area that I think uh, that some of us are weak. We're really good at saying, these are my gifts and I will serve where I'm gifted. But we're not as, uh, as faithful when it comes to just simply saying, this is an area of need. Imagine that you see someone having a heart attack and you think, I'm not a doctor. I'm not going to stop. You just go your way. Hopefully you don't do that, right? Even though you might not be a doctor, you can at least stop you could at least pray. You could call 911. You could hold their hand. You could speak truth over them, whatever it might be. There's something that you can do. There's some way that you can meet their, their, their uh, pressing need. Likewise, in the context of the local church, you might not be gifted in a particular way, but whenever there is a particular need that is uh, evident, then we all need to rally around in that particular uh, area. So let me give you a few as it relates to Parkway. If you're a member of another local church or you go to another church, local church, you're going to need to do the hard work of assessing where they're weak. But let me give you three pressing needs at, uh, at Parkway. The first one, we need volunteers in preschool. 
We talk about that all the time. Why do we keep talking about it? Because that need isn't going anywhere anytime soon. Why not? Why isn't that? Why can't Carl just figure it out on his own? I'll tell you why. There's three reasons at least. One, because y'all keep getting pregnant, all right? Every one of you. Actually, my wife is pregnant right now. Some of y'all didn't know that. Some of y'all didn't know that, but congrats to us. And, uh, and so uh, we collectively keep getting pregnant. There's something in our water here, in the water fountain. We're going to get that checked. A second reason is because a lot of our people who are serving, who are volunteering in preschool, they get pregnant, and eventually they get to a point where they need to take a break in order for, for them to have a baby. That's another reason. So we have this sort of revolving doors of volunteers. A third reason is because that's the context in which we've been put. Acts 17, that God appoints the times, the boundaries, and the seasons in which people live. And so it just so happens that here in McKinney, the average uh, person is in their early 30s, and they have two to three kids who are preschoolers. So as long as we keep reaching the community, as long as people keep coming, as long as we keep growing, we're going to continue to have this need, and so we're not going to stop talking about it. That's one way. Whether you're gifted with kids or not, that's not the question. The question is, is this a need that I can in any way contribute to? We'll train you. We'll do all of that kind of stuff. That is one of our needs. Second, we need help financially. I don't relish talking about money. Some pastors do. I don't. But this passage talks about those who contribute with generosity. We need members who are gifted with finances. We need members who are gifted with a heart to give, but we also need others who maybe aren't really that gifted, but just do whatever they can. Why do we need finances? Not so that we can get heated pews, not so that we can uh, build this lazy river and a water slide and call it Noah's Park or something like that. The reason that we need finances is so that we can buy light bulbs and pay our bills And maybe have a benevolence fund, so if there's a member that's in need, we can be able to bless them financially, whatever it might be. If you have any questions whatsoever about our transparency or vulnerability when it comes to uh, finances, come and talk to any of our elders or deacons. We would love to to have a conversation with you about that. We want to be very transparent any time that we're talking about some things, such things. That's a a second area of need. We need help financially. Third, we need personal discipleship. We need people who recognize that discipleship doesn't just happen in this building on this particular day, but over coffee tables and in hospitals and at dinner and so forth. We need people who are willing to just sit down with one or two others and read books together, pray together, confess sins together, talk theology, give parenting, marriage advice, whatever it might be. We need people who recognize that they can't just rely upon programs, but instead they need to be uh, looking for informal opportunities to meet with and encourage and serve others. Those are just three current needs. I could give more, but those are just three current needs that you don't have to be particularly gifted to meet. You could be like the widow with your one cent, and you have helped us financially. You could be not gifted at all with kids and come and help us, and uh, that would serve our body. You just need to be humble and willing to help. So once you belong to a body, and you have identified your gifts, and you've identified the needs of the body, what do you do? The biblical command is that you serve. That's the command here in this text. It says, having gifts, let us use them. But I don't know where to serve. Well, I just mentioned a couple. But let me give you a stronger sort of pastoral word. 
That is that you don't need some sort of formal invitation from me or from Zach or from Wade or from Dave or Mike or any of the other elders or whatever it might be. You don't need some sort of formal invitation to serve. You don't need a pulpit or a classroom in order to teach. Just get one or two others and go grab coffee. Talk about the Bible. If you have a passion for evangelism, you don't need a class. You don't need a program. Just get to invite people over to your house for dinner and invest in them and hope for capital to be able to share the gospel. You don't need a singles ministry to minister to singles. You don't need a women's ministry to uh, minister to women. You don't need a men's ministry in order to minister to men. That's one of the things that might be a little bit strange about Parkway for coming from another church that has a billion programs or whatever it might be. We don't have a lot of programs. Instead, we just want to equip you and empower you and uh, just send you out to go and to do ministry in your individual context. You have contacts that we will never have. And so we want to just empower you and equip you and send you out in those contexts in order to do ministry. We'll never have a formal ministry for middle-aged men who love to read Scripture, and then afterwards they wear spandex and ride their Bibles, ride their, bi- ride their bicycles, <laughs> or ride their Bibles. That's weird, too. Ride their bicycles, right? But if that's your thing, like if you want to get together with other middle-aged men and you want to ride your bicycles and wear spandex and read the Bible, you're welcome to do that. Just don't wear your spandex at church. That's weird for us. Right? You don't need some sort of formal position or ministry in order to serve. You don't need permission from the elders to just be a Christian. That's what it means to be a Christian. You're serving the body. You don't need permission from us in order to do that. In other words, within a church, there are a few formal opportunities to minister, preschool, elementary, production, worship like Bryce was doing today, welcome team. There's a few formal opportunities to serve but there are thousands of informal opportunities to serve. Your coworkers, your neighbors. For example, today you could meet a visitor or meet a member that you don't know after services and just invite them to go to lunch with you. Or you could visit someone in the hospital or start a meal train for one of our infinite number of people who are pregnant. You could join a community group so that you could have a formal context in which to be encouraged and encourage others. That's a form, that's a way that you can serve the body. You could pray for Parkway, pray for our members and attendees, pray for our elders and staff, pray for finances and faithfulness and discipleship. Just praying regularly is a way that you could serve the body. You can read your Bible. Maybe you don't think of that as a way to serve the body, but we need healthy members to contribute to the body. And if you're not reading your Bible, you're unhealthy. You're not growing. You're not being strengthened in the means of grace that God has provided through the spiritual discipline. So read your Bible. Another way, find someone in your community group and just start meeting a couple of times a month to do accountability or read a book together. Do personal discipleship. Another way, live missionally. Get to know your neighbors and coworkers. Invite them over for dinner so that you can purchase capital to talk about deeper matters. Invite them to church with you. Don't just say, hey, do you want to come to church? Meet me there. Say, hey, let me pick you up. Let me take you to lunch afterwards, whatever it might be. Maybe you even budget that into your monthly budget to be able to do something like that. You can serve the body by inviting others to join us, whether they're brand new believers or those who have followed Christ for decades. Do I need to keep going? Because we could. We could get a big whiteboard up here and we could just brainstorm out all of these different informal opportunities that every single one of you in this room has to serve. 
If anyone ever comes and says, I don't have a context in which to serve at Parkway, they don't understand Parkway or service. They're thinking through very formal lenses. I want us to understand that Sunday is not the time that we come to serve. Sunday is the time that we come to be equipped so that we're serving Monday through Saturday. Throughout the week, we're serving, we're loving, we're encouraging others. So we started this morning by talking about theology. So I just want to end the sermon with one more pastoral theological word as it relates to all this. We started with theology. We got a little bit into practicality and applications and implications of the text. And then I want to end with this uh, theological word. We talked about how if you want to transform the habitat, your surroundings, your context, your culture, that it has to begin with your head. If you want to transform your habitat, you do so with your hands, you do so with your serving, but the reason that the hands are moving is because they're following after the heart. We talked about the reason that the heart is going to do something is because it's following after the head. There's this, this renewed mind, this renewed thinking. You have to have a heart that's transformed to love people, and that begins in the mind as you reflect upon the reality that we are, as Paul writes, members one of another, that we're not disconnected and disjointed, but intertwined and interdependent for the glory of God and the good of the body and the health of her individual members. In other words, you will never serve as God has intended for you to serve until you understand ecclesiology, until you understand the beautiful yet messy reality that is the church. As long as you think of yourself too highly as long as you think of yourself as being independent, as long as you think of the church as being optional or inconsequential or peripheral, again, as long as you think of yourself more highly than you ought, or you think of the church more lowly than you ought, you think of the individual members more lowly than you ought, you will never have a passion or the perseverance that's necessary for true transformation of the local church, and you'll rob yourself and others of joy and veil the glory of God's grace. So let's pray, and then we'll partake of communion together. Father, I thank you for your word this morning, and I pray that it would press upon our hearts, Lord, that we might all think of ourselves with sober judgment according to the measure of faith that you have assigned to each of us. As we have been given differing graces, that we might seek to use those graces uh, for your glory and for the edification and encouragement of others. I pray that you protect us from pride and presumption and preference. I pray that you protect us from thinking of the church as being something inconsequential or irrelevant. I pray that you would just give us a mind that knows the glory of the church and your expectations and a heart that's passionate for it so that our hands would be eager to serve and that the habitat of our church would be transformed. We pray these things because you love Parkway, you love the universal church, you love the body and bride, you love its individual members more than we ever will, and so you are passionate about these things, and so we ask all of this with hope and expectation in Jesus' name. Amen.